as I read. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemir. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their land. Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. That, ladies and gentlemen, is just part of the good news. I doubt whether the names Tola and Jair are on anybody's list of most favored biblical characters. Back when I graduated from seminary, and you have to undergo a very rigid, uh, very rigorous um, ordination exam, and there's several different portions to it. You have uh, the theology section, you have the sacraments, you have church history, and you have the original languages, and you have an English Bible portion of that of exam. And, and one of the questions that I was asked in standing before this, which I've told you about in the past, the Dutch Mafia, they were called there in Miami, um, I was asked to name some uh, judges, some men uh, who are some of the judges out of this book. And so I named for them a, a, an adequate number out of the 12 or 13 that there are. And they were, they were satisfied. But two, I want to assure you that I did not name were Tola and Jair. I, I didn't remember them and, uh, and have just come to know a little bit more about them in the preparation for this. Um, we're not told much about them. Some of these judges are a very significant biblical characters, and they, um, we, we get a lot of information about them, like Samson, and which we're about to come to, by the way, Jephthah and Gideon and, and Othniel. We, we hear a considerable amount about them, but there are some who are minor characters, and uh, these two happen to be such characters that we know so very little about. We know something about a 30 donkey, and we know something about a little bit, of, a little bit about their family, but we don't know much else. One thing we do know is that they, um, they supervise, they... Uh, they, were, they oversaw about 45 years of peace, which is no small thing. 
In fact, as you study the book of Judges, I think, ladies and gentlemen, you'll discover that uh, those periods that we, we find ourselves talking about are, are oftentimes not the exception, but they're more peace than there is judgment. You'll find long periods where the people of God were ruled and governed by men who feared God, and the result was peace in Israel. There is one minor point that I'd like to draw to your attention before we head to what I think is the major part of our text. And I, and I wanted you to notice uh, just the first two words again, after Abimelech. Now, it was back in May that we looked at Abimelech, and I don't expect anybody to remember him. But Abimelech was the quintessential scoundrel. He, there was nothing good about him, and ultimately he uh, was brought to a very untimely and ugly death. But uh, Abimelech in chapter 9 was n nothing that anybody would want to emulate. But my, my simple point is this. We're told that after Abimelech, that is, after Abimelech had done his worst, God sends this saving mission in the, in the person of uh, Tola and Jair. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Abimelech never has the final word. Evil will never have the final word. God is always raising up deliverance on the heels of untold evil. God will have the final word, ladies and gentlemen. Just something that I hope will address a portion of what we are all experiencing as a nation. But after those first five verses, the focus turns to the children of Israel. It turns to the nation of Israel. And um, what does it tell us they're up to? Well, as we've learned in the book of Judges, uh, this is something that we've seen almost as a refrain in the text. We find in the first uh, seven or eight words there that the children of Israel again did evil. The emphasis is upon the again. And what you find in the, in the following words is not just apostasy, ladies and gentlemen, but apostasy times seven. There are mentioned there that the people of Israel didn't head to just one God. Oh my goodness, no. They were far more creative uh, than that. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of... They just got all kinds of gods. I mean, there is a multiplicity of gods. There's a catalog of gods that Israel is chasing after now. And you'll notice that their, their, their actions really are summarized in, verses, in verse 6. In three words, they served the Baals, they forsook the Lord, and did not serve Him. Three simple verbs that summarize what Israel is up to. They forsook the Lord, they didn't serve Him, but they served the Baals. That's descriptive, ladies and gentlemen, and you'll notice, I think, and I hope, that no specific sin is mentioned. None is needed. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when you do, when you do forsake the Lord, you can expect any kind, any measure, any number of aberrations and perversions that will rise up around people who forsake the Lord. Um, after Tola and Jair are well in their grave, the people decide that they didn't like serving Jehovah. Jehovah was way too rigid, way too narrow, way too demanding. And so let's go after those gods, you know, the, the ones that have the asterisks with them. That's basically, ladies and gentlemen, a description of a male god with a female consort. The Ashtoreths are female gods with all that uh, uh, ritual uh, harlotry that went along with it. Because the religion that the people really wanted was not one where God made demands of them. Oh, no! They were after the sensual. They were after that which turned them into uh, having a good time. Now, by the way, um, I did not say sexual. I said sensual. Sensual. 
<laughs> one of my heroes years ago, 25 years ago, said to me, he felt like the biggest church that was facing, the, uh, the biggest problem that was facing the church is sensuality. That the people of God no longer want demand. They no longer want the rigid. They no longer want to be told hard truths. Speak to us smooth things. So, oh, Dr. Young, give to us something that's entertaining. Give to us that which tickles our fancy. Give us that which warms our hearts. But speak not to us of the hard things. Give us gods that will um, appeal to our overall demand and desire for sensual things. And as a result of Israel choosing these gods, God sells them to not one, but two enemies. One from the east and the other from the west. If you know anything about the geography of uh, the Promised Land, the Philistines, ladies and gentlemen, kind of lined the west coast along the Mediterranean Sea. The Ammonites were across the Jordan in the east. And so now Israel finds herself, finds herself in the jaws of two of her enemies, one from the west and one from the east. She's now fighting a war on two fronts because we're told that in response to her choosing the Baals, in verse 7, that the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Which really brings me to my first principle that I would draw to your attention this week, ladies and gentlemen, out of this text. The principle is simply this. Whenever the people of God whenever they choose other gods in the place of the God, you can expect, you can bank on the anger of the Lord burning hot. Guys, um, do you know the difference between apostasy and heresy? What you find here is an example of an apostate nation, not a heretical nation. Heresy is that which false prophets speak falsely to anybody. Heresy is wrong truth. And there's been a lot of that in the media these days. Heresy is, is that which departs from truth, ladies and gentlemen. But apostasy is not heresy. Apostasy is the peculiar sin of God's people. Apostasy is the sin of forgetting. Apostasy is the sin of not remembering who's on first. Apostasy is the posture of people, is the posture of other people. When they decide they don't want that other gods. And what you have here, ladies and gentlemen, is the grand sin of apostasy on the part of God's people. Apostasy is when the heart of God's people grow cold. And then they begin to chase after foolishness. They begin to chase after a multiplicity of things that have nothing to do with God. You know, one of the questions that has been put to me often in, in, in this week, and interestingly enough, I, I don't have time to read the paper in the morning, but I was given a phone call this morning. phone rang about 7.50 and uh, somebody was telling me, have you read the newspaper? Have you read this uh, A section, page 7? And I said no, and so I ran into the, got the paper and read it and and it seems that I'm not the only one that's been, answer, been asked this question. But the question that has been put to me several times is that, Jimmy, do you think this is God's judgment? This, that which has happened in Washington 
in New York, do you think it is God's judgment? I don't know. And I think it would be arrogant of me to stand up here and say, I know exactly what God is up to. But ladies and gentlemen, I can speak to you principially. I can speak to you about principles. Which allows me to tell you at least this much. Whenever God's people pursue foolishness, the anger of the Lord will burn hot against them. I do not know everything that God is up to in these days, ladies and gentlemen. But I do know this. I know that when the hearts of the people of God grow cold, you can bank on it. That the anger of the Lord will burn hot. Ladies and gentlemen, I've heard much talk about the ignorance of Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings and, and Dan Rather. Of course they are, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not concerned one whit from Tom Brokaw. I heard one Christian spokesman say that, that this has all been brought on us because of the gays and the lesbians. That's utter nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. Why is homosexuality any worse than adultery? Or pedophilia? Or internet porn? No, ladies and gentlemen, I know not what has prompted God's hand. And I know not what God's hand is doing, but I do know this much. Whenever the hearts of God's people grow cold, and they chase after foolishness, you can count on it, ladies and gentlemen. You can count on the anger of God waxing hot. My friends, forget the media. Forget the ACLU. Don't worry about Hollywood and how wicked she is. Forget the government and all of its liberalism. My concern is for none of them. I want to know. What about the church? What about us? You know, ladies and gentlemen, there's a text that's been used quite frequently this week. It was really used a lot back in the 70s. But it's a text I used a couple of times. I know Jeff used it on Tuesday night. It's a text in Second Chronicles 7 which simply says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear from heaven and deliver them and heal their land. Ladies and gentlemen, did you get that? Did you catch it? Didn't say anything about Tom Brokaw. It had nothing, no application for the ACLU. It said, if my people, you, us, if we would humble ourselves, and pray and seek His face. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I say to you candidly, I do not know all that God is up to, but I know this much. Whenever the people, whenever the hearts of the people of God, God grow cold, you can expect. So the only question before this house is simply this. What is the temperature of your heart? 
They endured this judgment for 18 years, did Israel. And I can see the false prophets all among them telling them that this is nothing to worry about, this is only temporary, that their false gods are only testing them, or whatever false prophets say to people to keep them in their false religion. But finally, after they've had enough, they've had a gutful, we find in verse 10 that the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. We have sinned against you, they say, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. And then in verses 11 through 14, God replies. God replies to this request of verse 10. And uh, He says, So the Lord, it says, So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? Don't you remember the Maonites that I delivered you from? Um, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. And then notice. Read it, ladies and gentlemen. Read it and may your heart weep. Therefore, I will not, I will deliver you no more. Why, that's, I've never heard of such a thing, Jimmy. Really? Then it's because you've not read your Bible. But I, because I can tell you of a truth, ladies and gentlemen, there is this, this principle is found in the Scriptures several places. Let me quote you one and then let me show you another. See if you can find the book of Proverbs real quick. Proverbs chapter 1 while I quote you the other one. It's out of Isaiah 55. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture which simply says this. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Ladies and gentlemen, you tell me. What is the implication of the word while? Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. What's the implication of that? It's very simply that there's going to come a time that He's not near. There's going to come a time where you'll call upon Him and he'll, you'll not be heard. There's going to come a time where He will look and He will say, I will deliver you no more. Look at Proverbs 1, beginning at verse 24. Because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel, says God, and would have none of my rebuke. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. I will not be found by them. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when your hearts grow cold... One of the things that begins to happen is that we begin to think some real funky thoughts about who God is and what He's like. We come to the place where we feel like He is, um, uh, it is His duty to grant me whatever I ask. Our, our view becomes somewhat sordid. And we begin to view God like this giant, warm, vending machine in the sky into which we must only drop a few tokens of forgiveness and out of which that we can then expect to coax out of Him the desired response. We can coax out of Him this deliverance that we so desperately crave as long as we drop in the vending machine that which is appropriate. Because as you know, Religion is nothing more than a game, a big game. And you just got to play the rules. You got to play by the rules. There's a story in Acts chapter 8 about a guy by the name whose, whose name is Simon. 
Simon was a sorcerer from Samaria. Uh, Simon the sorcerer from Samaria but he was well known in his city and, and Philip came to town and began to preach the gospel and people began to get converted and he was watching all this and very intrigued and very interested by it and about that time uh, Peter came down to Samaria to witness all that was going on there in Samaria this is in Acts chapter 8 and um, uh, Simon kind of sauntered up to Peter after he had seen Peter uh, uh, pray and people receive the Spirit of God and, and begin to do mar- marvelously miraculous things. And Simon walks up to him in verse 18 and says, um, You reckon you'd sell me that? Because as you know, you know, as long as you punch the right buttons and do the right thing and offer up the right stuff, you can get God right in a corner and you can get out of Him anything you want. And listen to what Peter said. Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Oh, did Simon get the shock of his life. And so did the people of Judges 9, ladies and gentlemen. And so may some of you. In your concept of God, does it include does it include the possibility of refusal? Then if not, ladies and gentlemen, you have an idol for a God. God looks at these, these people and says, Nope. You, you've got me all wrong. You need to... Look what he says in verse 14. You go cry out to the gods which you have chosen. You've, you've miscalculated badly. Why don't you just go cry out to the gods that you've got? Why don't you go bow down to the god of portfolio? Uh, you know, maybe you can... Um, maybe that can help you make some sense of all of this. No, no, why don't you go, why don't you go make offerings to that God of entertainment of yours? Maybe the God of entertainment will, you know, calm your troubled soul. Oh, why don't you people go call out to the God of, of human ingenuity and human beauty and skill and ability? Maybe that'll calm and numb you from the pain that you're involved, that you're experiencing. No, no, you've got me wrong, boys and girls. You go cry to your gods. How long, ladies and gentlemen? How long will you enjoy gods that are our foolishness? How often, how long will, it, will we live lives so that we can stack another hundred dollar bill on top of the other? How long? What is it going to take? Oh, my friends, I delight to see the American flag all over the streets of Germantown and Memphis. But has it crossed our minds that there is a higher loyalty than even to America? Ladies and gentlemen, what, what, what good are your gods doing you now? How far will they take you? What meaning can you derive? What vacuums will be filled by choosing the God of the Sidonians and choosing the gods that stimulate your fancy? No, no. 
No, you go check with your gods. I will deliver you no more. And then the story continues in verses 15 and 16. And I, and I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this is what stumped me. In trying to deal faithfully with this text, this is where I got stumped. I can say that you and I as Christians, we're, um, we're prone to, um, to speak of a God that is safe, a God that is predictable, a God that is manipulatable. But I'm telling you, when I come across texts like verse 14, very honestly, I can deal with that. I can deal with the conviction that my own heart must sense because I am guilty. But then I come to this verses 15 and 16 and I throw up my hands in absolute inability and wonder, what am I going to say to the people of God about this? When I come to verses 15 and 16, it's almost as if I have to go back and unsay everything that I just got through saying to you. Because the people respond. Oh, they respond. They say, oh, God, God. They respond to verse 14. They respond to His rejection. And they say, we have sinned. Do whatever seems best to you. And deliver us, we pray. So they put away their foreign gods. And notice, I want you to concentrate, ladies and gentlemen, on verse 16. Because I'm telling you. If this doesn't bring bafflement to your heart and soul, then you didn't read it correctly. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. You know, gang, if this story had stopped at verse 14, I would have understood it. I would have known how to preach it. I could have brought it to you. And I could have said, you see... You see what we've done? You see that? And, and now he said, I'm not going to deliver you any longer. I understand that. I can cope with it. I can describe it. I, because I react like that. I come to times with people and I said, okay, that's enough. Uh, I'm not going another step with you. Get yourself another whipping boy. I, I've, I've gone the extra mile. I understand that reaction. I understand the reaction of verse 14. What I do not understand is verse 16. And ladies and gentlemen, before you leap to a conclusion, I want to close by, by undoing your conclusion. Because as you read the text, what did you conclude? I know that when I read it the first time and, and was starting to try and wrestle with it, I, I read it like this. Oh, I see. God said that over here in verse uh, 14. And it was just kind of a ploy because they really got going after that. And they really got repentant after that. And oh, and then they, they put away their foreign gods. And as a result of their doing that, then God said, okay. My friends, if you came to that conclusion that God finally was painted into a corner by the repentance of the people such that He had to respond to them, then you missed it. You missed it for this reason. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if that's so, then what you and I have to conclude is that you and I, because of human performance, can, can coax God into the desired response. That we, that we can, by our doing this or that or the other, we can twist his arms so tightly behind his back that he will finally cry uncle and do give us exactly what we want. And thus, ladies and gentlemen, he is a manipulatable God who sits in heaven ready to see us and how serious we will ultimately get. And if we really get serious, then we can expect him to do exactly what we want. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't have that. You can't have such an ungodly position. Kind of a quid pro quo. 
kind of a this for that. God is predictable and manipulatable if I just do what I'm supposed to do. I want to show you something. If you can keep your finger in Judges. If you can find the book of Joel. It's Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel, Daniel, it's uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel. It's a small book. I'm in chapter 2, verse 12. You, you've got to get this principle, my brother and sister in Christ. You've got to get this one. Verse 12, chapter 2. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a divine mandate right there to repent. Yes. But read on. Because He is gracious and merciful. Now, do you understand what's being said? You're, the, the, the God that you're repenting before is not waiting on a certain intensity level of your repentance. Any response He makes to us at all comes because... He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And He relents from doing harm. Why? Because you repented enough? God forbid! His responses to us, ladies and gentlemen, are not due to the intensity of our repentance, but due to His grace and His mercy. Now read on. Even after that repentance, notice what it said. Who knows? Who knows if he will turn and relent? Do you understand that, ladies and gentlemen? Bring your repentance, yes. But whereas repentance might be a, a condition of God's favor, it is never the cause of God's favor. Our hope always lies in His grace. No, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll note in this text, God's response in verse 16, it does not say, Oh, because these people so repented before me, I'm going to hear their prayer. No, ladies and gentlemen, God's response is not tied to their repentance. It is the reason for it is to be found in His own soul. Look at the text. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Why did he respond? Because we jumped to the right hoop? No, ladies and gentlemen. He responded because his heart is so enormous that he will move towards a people in the midst of their sin. Ladies and gentlemen, does that not overwhelm you? After apostasy, after apostasy, after apostasy, after apostasy, our Heavenly Father says, I cannot endure my people's suffering. There is no hope in this text, ladies and gentlemen, save that. And the hope is not found on whether the people of God repent purely enough. The hope is to be found in the person, the character, and the nature of our God. 
Our only hope, ladies and gentlemen, is not that our missiles will find bin Osama bin Laden. Our hope lies not in the strength of our air might. Our hope lies in discovering the, the nature and the character of this God who loves us in the midst of our sin. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not used to people like this. I don't understand. I don't relate. I can't relate to people. I mean, in fact, I don't know any who are both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. I find text in Exodus 34 that says, I have, gracious upon, I have grace upon thousands forgiving the iniquity of this generation, but I will by no means clear the guilty. We don't normally find those two married within the same person. And in response to that, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing but one thing we must do, and that is worship. We cannot fathom a God who can be perfectly righteous, perfectly just, and at the same time, perfectly merciful to a group of people who exchange their love of God for a portfolio or season tickets to the Grizzlies. Oh, my friends, in response to His perfect justice, there is but one response. And I call you as my brother and sister in Christ to repentance. Not that you leave here this morning with the sense of, oh my, we're in a national crisis now. I'll tell you what a crisis is, ladies and gentlemen. A crisis is when the people of God begin to take His mercy for granted. When we think that His mercy is ours by right. And that if we do this and punch the right button and jump through the right hoop, oh, He'll come a-running. Ladies and gentlemen, repentance. Not that it isn't ended at the end of this day, a repentance that is daily as we cry out to this God for mercy on a people who do not deserve it. Me and you! I say again, I'm not, consider, I'm not concerned one whit about Hollywood. What I want to see is the people of God respond. And respond in such a way that we grieve. Grieve over our apostasy. And in response to His grace, ladies and gentlemen, I can only ask you, we should all pause and thank Him that for so many years He has endured our rebellions in our wicked ways. Oh, what a God this is. And I say, ladies and gentlemen, if you find yourself gravitating to the severe end of the spectrum, 
as if God is going to stretch forth some mighty arm and rub all of our enemies off the face of the earth, then I say to you, you missed it. What you need to do is come and meditate on this text. Because I am utterly convinced that the concern of God has nothing to do with this nation. It has to do with His people. Two other things. First of all, I said earlier at the very beginning of the sermon, Abimelech, ladies and gentlemen, will never have the final say. Evil will never have the final word, ladies and gentlemen. Count on it. When evil has done its worst, God will speak. And He will send a saving mission as He did in Tola and Jair. And He will speak words of grace. The final word of God is always words of grace. And then finally, if you are here today, my friend, and you have seen the very same things that I have seen all week, and if you have seen the frailty of human life, and have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I do not understand how you can lay your head on your pillow tonight with any measure of peace. I do not understand how you can watch what we've watched and not long to have the comfort of the people of God. Oh, I invite you to Christ. Today is the day of your salvation. Heed your call. Heed this call. That we might never again take for granted either this God or the ways of this God. Father, my concern is for the church, and I pray that you will raise up mighty men of valor, mighty women of strength and leadership, that you would raise up people of God who have done with their false gods, who are done with their foolishness and cool hearts. And can respond with no, in no better way than to repent of their sin. Oh God, give us a church full of people who seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then Father, for those who have come here today who have not yet met our Savior. They bring their confusion, they bring their pain, they bring, bring their grief, they bring their sorrow. But they do not bring their gratitude to Jesus Christ for His saving work. Oh, might they see their need before they never ever take another step. Bring them to faith, O oh God. Bring them to faith now, we beg you. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name.